appreciate, again, that reminder. Keep me near the cross, I believe part of that means keep me in remembrance. That is what communion is about too, right? All that Christ suffered for us. And folks, there's no way to get around it. This is an awful picture. It's horrible in, many, in, in so many respects. But I want us to remember throughout all of, as we look at some of the specifics of what Christ went through. Remember what Paul just read in Isaiah 53, verse 10. And it really, it, it, it's incomprehensible in some ways to us, and yet we are so very glad it's true that yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This was all God's plan, all that Jesus went through in these, the cruel hands of these tormentors who mocked God and loved the things of the world. This was the plan of God. It was his will. Why? Because at the end, Isaiah says, um, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors, because he poured out his soul to death. Because he was numbered with the transgressors, he's able to make intercession. All that Jesus went through was God's plan. And even in the angry anger and vitriol of the religious leaders and Pilate's willingness to capitulate to that, well, still, I think, amazed that a group that is seemingly so religious could be so bloodthirsty. Through all of that, this was the Father's plan and will. He desired Christ go through this, and Christ was willing to go through this for us because of our sin. And so as we turn, turn to John 19. Really, when you come to this, it's almost hard. There's not a lot of illustrations even today because of the serious, the awful aspect of this scourging and crucifixion of Christ is truly an awful thing to behold or, or even contemplate as we do. And there's one thing that we're not going to do today, or I'm going to attempt not to do. Many authors and many preachers, you get to this point, have taken a lot of time to go into much greater, just candidly gory details about what Jesus suffered. You know what I'm thankful for? The gospel writers, writers mercifully keep us from a lot of that. The readers would know the simple, few simple words that John and the other gospel writers give. The readers at this time would know and have the picture in their minds of all that Jesus went through. And so we do have to give you that picture somewhat. But I'm thankful the gospels give us really little details on the torture that Jesus experienced. I remember growing up, my, my pastor was one of these that spent a lot of time visualizing what Jesus would go through. And you've heard these messages before, and I'm not trying to say that there's maybe not a place in some ways. I'm not really comfortable in doing it this way, but those that go and give every detail from what they know of, of history and what um, 
the victim of a crucifixion would have went through. And it, it is helpful to know the extent of what Jesus went through. But here's the problem. Well, first of all, there's one really practical aspect of this. I'm, when, when I contemplate to that degree, there, there's a reason why the Lord called me to ministry and not to be in the medical field or a doctor or anything like that. When it comes to bloody scenes and things like that, I don't do well. And I don't really like to meditate on those things too much. And the Gospels give me all that I need to know of what Jesus went through. But if we focus on, on all of the little details of all that he went through, you know what we forget many times? The spiritual agonies that he endured. The loss, in some sense, we're going to talk about this at the end of the sermon, the message this morning. The not total separation that he went through between him and his father, but still there was a moment. There were spiritual agonies that he was going through. And we also forget to, I think, when we focus too much on the physical details of the crucifixion, we forget to remember what he was accomplishing. As we just read in Isaiah 53, through his death, that his literal blood had to be shed. So, and again, this is hard for us to comprehend, but it is the literal blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from sin. All the way in the Old Testament, God made it clear that blood had to be shed for the remission of sins. And the glorious, beautiful, perfect Lamb of God had to shed his blood and go through this awfulness for us. There's a quote here that I like from an old preacher. You probably have heard of G. Campbell Morgan before. I think this has some value to it. He says, I think the church of God has suffered more than it knows by pictures of the crucifying of Jesus and sometimes by very honest and well-intentioned sermons trying to describe the matter on the physical side. I am not denying the tragedy and the pain of it physically, but the physical suffering of Jesus was nothing compared to the deeper fact of that cross. And that is true. I want us to keep that in mind today, but folks, we do have to, as we go through John 19, we're going to put some other um, passages from the Gospels in here to give us a little bit more of a complete picture of what happened. We are going to see today the suffering of the King, suffering of the King of the Jews. John still portrays Jesus as a King in the midst of all that he goes through in this passage. So that is why we're reminded that he is King. That he suffered for us. Let's read just a little bit here and then we'll pray. Verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them, to the Roman soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. By the way, where do we get the term Calvary? Well, it's the Latin word for skull, the place of the skull. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on other side, and Jesus between them. John makes it clear that the king of the Jews suffered criminal crucifixion, and all for us. Lord, as we contemplate the truly awful picture of what Jesus was willing to go through, Help us as much as it grieves us. Help us fill it. Help us 
to be filled with wonder at the same time. That Jesus earlier on would refer to this as his glory. That there, in this awful scene, there would be glory. The glory of the king as he dies for our sins. As he sheds his blood so that we can have forgiveness of sins. As he hangs on that cruel tree and suffers the full curse of the tree for us. In the darkness of this moment, as we contemplate these things, help us to glory in the fact that he was willing to do this so we could be set free. Or let us embrace this and proclaim it again to those that need that freedom still, that they would know their need for the crucified Christ who shed his blood for their sins. Let us marvel that he was willing to do this at all for us. Let us submit to him as our king today as we finish this message. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The suffering of the king of the Jews, and even as we just read, the king of the Jews did suffer, and he suffered a criminal crucifixion. Let us not forget, this was the death, the most awful death that humanity, that the world had ever come up with for criminals. And that is what Jesus suffered. He was crucified as a criminal. Well, as we saw last week, even the best efforts of Pilate to have Jesus released were not successful. And so he had to deliver them him over to be crucified. Remember, we, went, we, we talked about the difference between the three types of beatings, that word flogging that John uses was a general word that could represent all three. It seems that first lighter beating was the one that Jesus went through initially. Um, he would have been bruised. He would have had some bleeding from his head from the thorns. And I don't think at that moment were, were pressed into his scalp. Long thorns that were inches long from probably a plant called the date palm. Sometimes those thorns could be as much as 12 inches has been reported before. And yet it was Pilate's desire for Jesus to be released when he delivered them over. And it doesn't even say that he gave a final verdict because he'd given his verdict already. Remember, this man is not guilty. He's innocent. And they rejected his verdict. And so he allows Jesus to be delivered over as a criminal, even though the official verdict was that he was innocent, to be crucified, and that meant that Jesus had to go through this third beating, the second beating that he would experience, but the most awful, the most excruciating. And it, it was referred to as the bear uh, bear ratio, and it was the most terrible scourging of all that was always came, always came for crucifixion. And so that seems to be, go ahead and turn quickly to Matthew 27 as we go back and forth here. Let's just see this described and note that the, the authors could have described this further, but this beating that's described here would have been after Jesus was taken away to be crucified. He would have had to suffer this. John uses the word flogging. We know this was accomplished. It was a horrendous leather whip. I had pictures of it last week in my, my visual book. If you saw that. 
with many long strands coming from that whip bound together. You've probably heard this before, but we know that in those strips, those strands, there was bone and metal embedded. You can just imagine, without my even having to say much, as those whips, those strands came across the back of a criminal, what that might do, literally shred and take the skin right off. And again, I don't want to be too graphic here, but as those that read the gospel, they would know that everything underneath the skin would be visible. And many times, the person that would go through that would die before they ever left the beating. Is that awful? If you were to go through this beating, it would only be a matter of time before you would. Because it's so terrible. It helps us understand why Jesus would need help, as Matthew points out here, carrying his cross, because he wouldn't be able to do that under the circumstances of this beating. Look at verse Matthew 27, verse 27. And the soldiers of the governor, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, soldiers of Pilate, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Remember, in Pilate's mind, this is all mockery. I think part of this with him is he is mocking the fact that the Jewish leaders have given, have sworn allegiance to Caesar, and he knows they don't mean it. So he's going to mock this whole thing, that, that this man would even be considered in his own mind, or that he would certainly be um, convicted for being a king of the Jews. He knows that that is their interest, that that is their number one concern. And so he mocks this whole thing. And the Roman soldiers take it to another level. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him. And I hope that you've never had to experience somebody actually spitting on you. Somebody so angry that they spit toward you. And you know the awfulness of what that means. Or if you've seen somebody do that, even a movie or in a drama. It is basically that person saying, you are nothing to me. You mean nothing to me. I spit at you. I despise you. Can you imagine these Roman soldiers doing this? Probably the spittle hanging off Jesus. He's going through this terrible thing. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes on him. Led him away to be to crucified him. Of course, as we go back to John, we'll see that he went out bearing his own cross. So we know that Jesus was made to carry his cross for a while as they went out from the city near the Temple Mount and went to Golgotha, the place of the skull. But Matthew also tells us in verse 32 that after some point, Jesus couldn't carry his cross anymore because of the horrific suffering of the beating that he went through. As they went out, so they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man. Don't think that they convinced him. They made you get over here. Carry this cross. And carried, Simon carried his cross. It seems like he was a man that was well-known in Christian circles, maybe 
came to know the Lord through this, and the church knew him well. It compelled this man to take his cross, carry his cross. Go back to John chapter 19, back to verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross, and then, of course, Simon helped to a place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And again, I mentioned that there's two possible sites we think today. I think the traditional one is probably makes the most sense. It was closer to the temple. Why was it called the place of a skull? And we're not told. Yes, uh, there, there's the secondary uh, possibility uh, for where Jesus was crucified, where Colonel uh, Gordon discovered, I think, like I said, 100 years ago, archaeological evidence. There is some sort of semblance in the rock of a skull. We don't know how long that was there. Uh, and it was farther out from the city than seems would be necessary. So why was this called the place of the skull? Many scholars have given ideas. Maybe there was skulls still littered at the place where others have been crucified. Maybe there was another reason why this was referred to that way. We don't know, but it was fittingly called the place of the skull where these deaths would take place. It was a prominent place as you would enter in near the temple where everyone could see what was going on. This was done before the public. All could view this. And Pilate will make it even more clear in just a minute of what is going on. But there they crucified him as a criminal. With him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. And again, we're not going through every detail of what happened during the crucifixion. But you know that the other Gospels tell about the two criminals and how they both mocked him. And then one, after a while, as seeing Jesus' response, and maybe these very words we'll look at in just a minute, for asking forgiveness, the, one of them responds in faith. We will meet that man one day. That was literally crucified next to Jesus. But John just makes it clear here that Jesus is being treated. The king of the Jews, the glorious savior is being treated as not just a common criminal. You don't get this type of beating and crucified for a common criminal, but the worst sort of low-life criminal, the worst sort of murders. If you think of the worst crime that could be committed today in our society, tend to want to see the full extent of the law brought down upon that person. Folks, that was how Jesus was crucified. was committing that kind of sin. And he would literally bear the worst sin in all of our sins, wouldn't he? And you think through this, as he's being crucified, um, he also says this from Luke 23, 34. You don't have to turn there. But Luke records for us, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll get back to that in a minute. But I want us to see here what, I have a, a couple of quotes that help us understand what crucifixion would have been like. And these are quotes that don't go into all the details, so I think they're helpful, but they give us a good idea. One uh, commentator, Leon Morris, describes it as this. The gospel accounts are the fullest descriptions of crucifixion that have come down to us from ancient times. Crucifixion was a shameful thing, 
and the writers of antiquity do not dwell upon it. I find it interesting that even the people in church history did not give the gory details, unlike today where we have many that, that revel in that. It was understood this was so awful, it was something that wasn't spoken of much. But the victim was fastened to the cross with either cords or nails, in Jesus' case, and the nails being driven through the wrists or forearms. And I think we understand that it couldn't be through the hand, or Jesus would not have been able, his body would not have been able to be stable there on the cross. But through his wrists, so that he would be firmly attached. The cross beams were fixed so that the victim's feet were off the ground, but not necessarily high off the ground. And there was a horn-like projection projection on which the crucified person could rest some of their weight, of his weight. That was not meant to relieve the sufferer, but to prolong the agony. If you can imagine, not quite a seat, but a sloped um, little projection, a horn-like projection of wood near uh, where Jesus, his midsection was that crucified person could at times kind of sit and, and catch themselves for a moment, but in actuality, the effect that it would have on their bodies would worsen the pain and bring death and prolong the agony. It's not actually certain, Morris continues, what actually caused the death of the crucified. Both the circulation and the respiration would have been affected. And this in a body already weakened by the vicious flogging, now subject to prolonged exposure. One suggestion is that the combination of all of this would initially bring, would eventually bring heart failure. But another possibility is brain damage caused by a reduced supply of blood reaching it. This is what I think was most probable in these circumstances. The effect on the lungs would be so reduced, it would so reduce the air supply that literally the victim would be suffocated. And amongst all the other things that the victim would suffer, for them to then be suffocated on the cross the where they could catch a breath. We get the idea here. It truly was awful. And as Jesus is experiencing all of this, he again says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is still looking out, ministering to others in the midst of this awful situation. What did Jesus mean by that, by the way? Did it mean he absolved them of their guilt, all the people, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders? Well, we know that's not possible. He's not, in effect, saying, Lord, I know, our Father, I know that they are intent upon doing this, but I pray you forgive them anyway. That's not possible. But what he is saying, he's recognizing that what he is going through, his sacrifice will provide forgiveness for sin. He's saying, Lord, I know that the sacrifice my shed blood will provide forgiveness for these people if they will turn to me. And then what does he mean by he says they know not what they do? It seems like these people have a good full knowledge of what they're doing. And the leaders, even themselves, want this to happen because they want Jesus, they want people to walk by Jesus and say, that man's cursed. Jesus is really saying here, they really don't have a full comprehension of the evil they are committing. None of these people that were involved in this truly understood the depths of what was going on. Folks, on another level, we do. 
This ought to move us as we think of all that Jesus is going through, suffering on this. This ought to move us to love him more. That he would be willing to think of the very people. When Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies, did he mean it? Yes, and he expressed it here in the most vivid way. People that had put him on the cross. He wants to see forgiveness for them. If they would turn to him. He was crucified as a criminal. We're going to see here Pilate makes it obvious, makes it clear that he is titled as a king. Look at verse 19. We're back in John 19 now. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. That gives us indication there of the traditional site. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is referring to a common practice for all the victims of crucifixion, that there would be some title or banner placed or nailed um, over their head with the obvious uh, goal of letting people know that passed by what they had been what they were being tried or what they had been convicted of, the sin, the crime that they had committed. Passersby would know for certain, and it was the point of Rome to broadcast the fact that this person has committed this sin and therefore they are experiencing this awful death. You don't want to do this. And yet all that Pilate does and officially writes out on this banner for Jesus is that He's the king of the Jews. Notice it's in three languages. Why three languages? Very practical reason for that. Aramaic was the language of the Jewish population. It was specifically, for hundreds of years, it was what the Jewish people spoke. Latin was the official language of the government of Rome. And Greek was the international language that was spoken across barriers and in, in, in the language of the world, so to speak. It may be a way that English today has permeated a good part of the world. All three of these languages would, would have been used. And so that means basically that no matter who you were, that as you walked by and saw Jesus and read that title, that you would know what Pilate was getting at. You would know that this person was being crucified for being the king of the Jews. It actually had the effect of a large, conspicuous sign that all passing by, regardless of where you came from, could read and understood. And I think that helps us understand why these Jewish leaders weren't very happy about that. The message that portrayed here. Well, why did Pilate do it that way anyway? It was true that they were crucified. They wanted him crucified because he had said he was the king of the Jews. Well, there's, I think of two possibilities. I think in one sense, Pilate's probably still mocking Jesus or the Jews, saying, they say they're aligned with Rome. This is the only king they'll ever have. This, this helpless victim is the only king of the Jews they'll ever experience. But I think there's another possibility here, too. I think that 
Pilate still incredulous that the, this group of religious people that gives them so much trouble that tries to uh, that, that promotes themselves as a, as a group and as these religious leaders promote themselves in their goodness and their uh, desire to follow their law to the nth degree. I think Pilate's still incredulous that they could be um, overtaken by such bloodthirstiness that they would want a man crucified in this way. It's almost as if he is saying, look what bloodthirsty vehemence, vehement, excuse me, they have toward one of their own. Look at these supposed religious people and how they treat someone like this. And they say, you need to change that writing. Pilate says, no, this is what, this is, it stays this way. I'm not changing it again. And what happens here in the end? Pilate is unwillingly declaring, unwittingly declaring the glory of Christ. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And even as he's going through this awful death in his glory, he is doing it for his people. The king of the Jews in glory in the midst of this awful scene. Pilate helps make this clear, even though he didn't intend for it to be that message. Folks, I think an application even in this awful moment. As we think through the account of Jesus' trials of his crucifixion, um, we see guys like Pilate and Caiaphas, and they're all unwittingly, they're choosing certain statements, uh, and they're choosing to do certain things. They're in the midst of their own choice of what they freely write and what they freely utter, they are unwittingly proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. We see that throughout this whole account. What does that tell me? God, the Father, is in sovereign control of all of these things. Even the very words that Pilate writes and that he speaks, these men that have crucified Christ, God is in control of all of this. And so, if the Father has a plan for literally the darkest hour in world history, then whatever dark thing you're facing, the death of a loved one, cancer diagnosis, a financial loss or a financial situation, um, a child that is turning from God, all of these things, the, the worst types of things that we can imagine happening in our lives, Folks, if God was in control of everything that happened during Jesus' crucifixion, he's in control of your life. Remember that. And he will use it. Is God going to use a crucifixion for his beneficial purposes, for good, for righteousness? Certainly. So he's going to use our tribulations for our ultimate good. Benefit. You see that application in this as we continue on? King of the Jews and all that he suffered. God will use it to bring forgiveness of sin. The king of the Jews finally suffers meaningful loss. Let's continue to look here. Verse 23. He's going to lose all. This is just signifies that Jesus lost all of his earthly possessions, just as we saw in Psalm 22. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. They did this just totally out of selfish gain themselves, but these soldiers even are fulfilling scripture, right? This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Even the very clothes that Jesus wears is taken from him. He hangs, probably without clothing or only a loincloth there on the tree. Why would the soldiers do this? Well, this was a part of their payment. It was a part of the agreement that if they were willing to do all of this, that they would get the clothes of the victim. And they're probably not, I think there's a good case to be made that they don't actually divide the garments, but they divide the different garments that, that a normal person would have worn. That would have been an outer cloak, an outer garment, an inner cloak, a belt, and a hat. And between these soldiers, they decide, well, you get this item of clothing, you get this item of clothing. But then when they get to the inner cloak, they seem like they're about ready to divide that up. And it was so valuable that they say, let's not do that. Why would the inner cloak that was worn near the skin be so valuable? Well, it was because it was made of one whole piece of cloth. It was very difficult to divide and very valuable. And so they said, well, stop. Let's gamble over that. We don't just want to tear that up. And it's given away in one piece. And David prophesied in Psalm 22 that this very thing would happen. For David, it was symbolic. He was saying, remember in our study in Psalm 22, David was saying, it feels like that people are ready, waiting for me to die so that they can take the things that are most important to me. And Jesus would realistically, vividly experience that as he literally lost his clothes to these Roman soldiers in the midst of their cruelty. He had every, he was willing to suffer loss, not only of his earthly possessions, but of his relationships. We see here, we say near the cross this morning, well, there were literally four women, I think it was four women, my study here, that were near the cross along with the seems like John, the disciple. The other disciples had left, but it seems John was still here by the cross. John continues in his narrative. So the soldiers did these things, but verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. And I think you could say, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women here. Jesus' mother, Mary. I think his mother's sister. There's a good case to be made that this is John, the disciple's mother. And if he doesn't mention his own name, he won't mention his wife, his, his mother's name either. And then a third, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. She'll enter into the story later, but she is a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Jesus delivered her from those seven demons. Remember, cast out those demons, and she has faithfully, committedly followed him since. And these women, isn't it interesting that it's mostly women that are the followers of Christ that are willing to look upon this awful scene because of their love for him. John's there. Doesn't seem like we have any of the other disciples there of the 12, of the 11. Um, but we have these women that are devoted to him at this awful, awful time. And can you imagine, folks, your own son looking on him and seeing <laughs> this awful, awful torture that he's going through? And Mary was right there visualizing all of this. Then think what Jesus did. Again, he's thinking of others. He sees his mother there. And I don't know about 
about you folks, if you tend to be this way, but when we get really sick or, or really hurt, we tend to get a little selfish, don't we? I know I do. The only thing I can think of is I want to get better and get going again. Folks, isn't it amazing that Jesus and all that he's suffering and enduring, he looks towards others and he sees his mother and he sees her weeping, and crying. He says to John, which says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, this seems to be John, behold your mother. And when it says there that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That means that he took responsibility for her. The oldest son, Jesus, had the responsibility to take care of his mother. And he passes that off now to John. Because his relationship with Mary will never be the same again on earth. And so in a sense, he's losing that relationship that he has with his own mother. But folks, I want us to remind us as well of one relationship that was the most important to him. That there seems some sort of loss of fellowship anyway. Turn with me quickly to Matthew 27, 45 to 47. And this is one of maybe in one sense one of the hardest statements to understand in all of the Bible, how this could be. You remember in the Gospel of John how Jesus made clear multiple times the unique close relationship between him and his father. And at one point in John, he said, I and my father are one. That relationship of the Trinity that can never be severed. And let's have that clear here. There is a sense where the Trinity, you can't separate God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not possible, right? So let's have, let's understand, John, or John made that clear about Jesus' identity all throughout this gospel. And yet, here Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamana sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. What does this mean? Is it really possible for the father, as we have heard said, and I've even said it in the pulpit, to turn his back on his son in that relationship that they have? Habakkuk. 113 talks about the fact that God cannot even look upon evil. But you realize that that phrase, turn his back, is not in Scripture. So we do have to be careful with it. But what is it? How can it be possible then that Jesus is saying this? How can God, the Father, forsake his own son when Jesus has said, I and my Father are one? And some some scholars, this has become more of a controversy. Some scholars say, well, God will never, could never forsake the Father, just like he never, God can never forsake the Son. He never forsakes us. So when Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, he's keeping in mind the glorious ending. He's not saying that God has forsaken him, the Father, but he's remembering the end of the Psalm and the beauty and the restoration that takes place, and he's looking forward to that. Well, I can see where you get that, but folks, this is a cry of agony. This is, this is not, and everything that I've studied here, this is Jesus in agony. And he is, I'm convinced, if he's crying out the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When David said that, David was feeling the distance in his relationship with God. 
and Christ is feeling some sort of loss or distance in his relationship with the Father that he's never experienced before. Is it total separation? No, it can't be. Otherwise, we we are um, really getting into false doctrine. But Jesus experienced a loss in his relationship in that moment as the sins of the world were placed on him that he had never experienced before. And it was a greater agony than everything else he had experienced to this point. Let me read to you one more quote here as we continue to think about these things. By uh, It said here, the crucifixion represented the peak of the torturer's art. Atrocious physical sufferings, length of torment, ignominy, the effect of the crowd gathered to witness the long agony of the crucified. The cross represented miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering, and degradation. And it truly was the peak of the art form of the torturer. That quote from a man named Reveal. With all of that in mind, folks, why did Jesus endure this horrible, cruel execution? Why was he willing to do this? To go through all this? Because remember, what was he doing? He was being fully obedient to the mission that the Father had sent him to accomplish. To drink, what was that mission? Ultimately, to proclaim the Father, to reveal him, and then to drink the full cup of wrath of God for us because of our sin. And in this moment, he is doing that. And for all the awful, horrible details of the crucifixion, the most awful thing is that Jesus took our sin upon him and experienced some sort of separation or loss of fellowship with his father for us. He was willing to do that. Are we willing then, as we reflect on all that he's done for us, to dedicate our lives more committedly to him because of that. That's really the purpose of all this, I think, as we finish up tonight or just this morning, to think on all that he's gone through and commit ourselves to following him in a more faithful way because of what he's done. Folks, how can you not think of Jesus in this picture of him on the tree crucified and not see his love for you and want to serve him more faithfully? And want to tell others. Because he did this for each of you. He did this for me. And he offers forgiveness to a world that has rejected him. Will we proclaim his sacrifice? His suffering? We need to. Pray that God will give us more passion to do that as we think on these things. Father, we need your help. As we really contemplate all that Jesus went through, the physical and the spiritual sufferings. He willingly did that. The glory of the cross, there is a glory in this that's hard to comprehend. His shed blood would provide us forgiveness of sins, would provide us his righteousness. And it was fully sufficient. Lord, we praise you that Jesus' work on the cross was fully sufficient sufficient 
for our forgiveness and for our eternal life. And that when we put our faith and trust in him. And I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice, hearing the sound of my voice today has done that. That when we put our faith and trust in him, that we will live with him for all eternity and be able to worship and give him glory and have forgiveness of sins and be made righteous. All of these things because of this cruel death that he suffered. Let us reflect and focus on the glory of that even more than we reflect on the torture that he went through. Help us to love Jesus more because of what he did for us. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray.